Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Listen, could you guys do something? Just Could you just stand up for a minute and just fist bump three people, look them in the eye, tell them that they look great, that you're glad they're here, that God's working in their lives, that He loves them. <laughs> All right, you can be seated again. I hate to interrupt that. That's what it's about, right? Like shine some light off each other. Yes. I am so grateful for the worship set tonight. I don't know what it is. I'm so thankful for music that God made vibrations do that. Like that just blows my mind that you can spend 20 minutes just, it says in Isaiah, it says that he gives us a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Like, so the spirit can be heavy, but you put on the garment of praise and there's just something so incredibly powerful in that. And you guys tonight just were off the charts in terms of how good that worship set was. And I can't see any of you except for Joel, but thank you guys so much for for that worship set. I needed it and it was a blessing uh, to, to have. So, um, Now we get to get into the Word. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, you can open it. If you need a Bible, just grab the attention of one of the ushers as they pass by you so that you can follow along with us in our study tonight as we continue through. Um, My wife did ask me to give an added um, plug to the prayer for the nations. That's tomorrow evening. You saw it in the announcements. It's here uh, in the youth room at seven, just an opportunity to come together and just pray over our country, pray that God would move. I think after you hear the message tonight and see what happened uh, as God responded to the prayer of his people, then it may encourage you to, but um, just be a part of that. And uh, let's just pray and then let's get into the message tonight. So Father, we again just uh, come to you in your word and, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us Uh, spiritual ears and understanding. We pray, Lord, that tonight you would uh, do the unexpected thing in us, that you would draw out of us and search through us, Lord, in ways that uh, we didn't know you could or, or that you would or, uh, or that you can. And so we just pray, Father, that you would bless the time, open our understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Okay, so the theme of the Bible, I mean, you could probably say a lot of things after that sentence, but the theme of the Bible Uh, really from the beginning to the end, uh, is the life of God or the life that God gives, the life that he intended to give. Uh, When we read in creation in the book of Genesis, we read that God first created the world really as a platform for every living thing. Uh, Life was the reason. When God uh, then placed man in the garden for whom all of the rest of life kind of existed, it tells us that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You know, that was what God gave. It was his intent. It was his motive. It was his design to give life and to reveal himself through that life. We know that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they lost that life. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they were cut off from the God who is the source of life. We know that the rest of the Old Testament, 
was man trying to grasp a hold of life apart from God, now being separated from him and trying uh, through his own uh, effort, through his own keeping of the law, trying to uh, somehow reattach to the life that had been cut off. When we come into the New Testament and we see the person of Jesus, we hear Jesus, God in human flesh, saying that he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. He said that he came to give his life as a ransom for the world. It was Jesus that came to restore that which was lost in the garden and to bring humankind back into uh, life. That was God's intent in sending Jesus. Uh, That's what he did. In Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection, what was birthed out of that is what we call the gospel or the good news, the message that God has restored life to humankind in the person of his son and that whosoever would put their trust in Jesus for relationship to God and forgiveness of sin that they might enter into life with God. And as we go through the book of Acts, it is the spread of the gospel, the message of life in Jesus Christ that really is the narrative. It is the melody that carries all the things that happen, the acts, the events in the book are all concerning the spread of the gospel or the message of life that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said right at the beginning of the book in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right before he ascended for the final time, he told his disciples, he said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses for me. That simply means that you're going to share what you have received, what you've seen, what you've experienced, and you're going to bring that to the world. He said, first in Jerusalem, that's where they were, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. He said, you're going to bring the message of life to the nations. That was what he told them that they would do. Now, he did it. Power came. And the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so intense was the fire that was started when the life of God was manifested that God had to intensely scatter. I see people laughing. It's making, is my fly down? Is there something? Because I'm, it really makes me self-conscious. It's, I, get, I know the giggles in church. It happens sometimes. As long as it's not something, is there food, nothing? I'm good? Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> the, the, the spirit was flowing so intensely in Jerusalem that God had to raise up intense persecution in order to cause the, sp- the fire then to spread out from where they were. And, and so God did that. There was, there was opposition that came to the church so that the fire then could then spread where it was. And so the disciples began to move out from Jerusalem And then at the same time, God began prepping the man that we're studying, the man Saul of Tarsus, who will become a man known as the Apostle Paul, who will then be kind of the apostle that takes the message further than uh, originally was. Now, at the same time God is preparing Paul, he moved Peter to bring the message to the Gentiles for the very first time. That's what we've seen uh, up to where we are in the chapters that we um, have just gone through. And, And where we are right now, we see Peter, his ministry is waning 
after tonight, we're going to more or less say goodbye to Peter. He'll show up here and there, but the record of his testimony kind of lays down as God then transitions to bring the message to the next group of people, that is, to the Gentiles, okay? But here are the dots that connect all of the things that happen in the book of Acts. They are strung together in this one theme of God spreading the gospel, the message of life in Jesus Christ. And the strings are all being orchestrated by God. And it's amazing for us to go through and look at how everything ties together and you see how God is providentially moving, building, flowing, pouring out his spirit on things. Now we saw Stephen was martyred back in chapter seven. He was a deacon in Jerusalem. That caused the persecution that ultimately led to Saul being saved and the church being dispersed and then the gospel going to the Gentiles. And now as we come to the second half of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we really get the shift from Jerusalem and Israel, that is God moving there, to now God going out to the rest of the world. Now the passage that we're going to go through tonight, this chapter and a half, it contains for us history, insight, understanding, spiritual principles that are meaningful and useful. But above all of that, there is a pattern. And that pattern answers a question that every one of us have, whether we know it or not. And that question is, how do I experience to its fullest the life that God intends for me to live? What does it mean to have life? What does life look like when I'm reconnected with the source of life that is God, and how is it best expressed and lived out? And that, that uh, question will be answered uh, in this text. So let's begin in chapter 11, verse 19, as we see some of these dots connected and see how God was moving so powerfully in these people in this time. Acts eleven nineteen, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose around Stephen... They traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Okay, so the cities that he mentions here are not within the borders of Israel, but they are in the land that we would call modern-day Turkey. In the Bible, it's the region of Galatia. It's in Asia Minor. And uh, we're told that they went there, but they only preached the gospel to the Jews because they did not know that God has now opened up the message to the Gentiles. It says in verse 20 that some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spoke to the Grecians. The Grecians are the Grecian Jews or Jews that had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. They are fully Jewish, but they are not living in the borders of Israel proper. proper. They are spread around throughout the Roman Empire. And so uh, these men from Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, they came from Jerusalem, but they were uh, originally from Cyprus and Cyrene. They go to Antioch, they preach to the Grecian Jews, and it says in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Okay, now about 1,500 years before any of this took place, like way back in the days of Moses, God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to uh, ordain for my people, the Israelites, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, I want you to ordain seven appointed times or appointed, he called them feasts in the Hebrew language, it's uh, appointments or appointed times. 
And he says that I want my people to come and gather in the place that I will choose, that would be Jerusalem, and there they are to offer to me and celebrate me on these seven occasions, and they're to do that year by year. That was a law that God gave through Moses to the people. And so they would do that year by year. Jews from Israel and then later Jews that had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, they would travel to Jerusalem during these appointed times in order to offer and to celebrate as God had commanded. Now, many of them didn't know why they were doing it. Some of them probably enjoyed it at first, and I'm certain that at some point it maybe even became a burden for some that had to travel the greatest distances, but nevertheless, they did it. Now, one of those appointed times was called Pentecost. It was 50 days after the Passover. And so 50 days after the Passover, Jews from throughout the Roman Empire would make their way to Jerusalem to keep this feast. Now, on one particular Pentecost that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon 120 believers that were gathered in an upper room. Peter preached a three-minute sermon, and 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus, 3,000 Jews. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that there were people from Cyprus and Cyrene that had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost that heard the message and received Jesus as their Savior. And so that day, there were Grecian Roman citizen Jews that gave their lives to Jesus because God said, I want everybody who is scattered around in this place for this appointed time. That's why Acts chapter 2 starts off by saying that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, meaning that the appointment to which all of the other years were looking forward to was that day then when the Spirit was poured out and the gospel was released and life was given through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, some of those Jews that were there visiting stayed there. The move was so powerful and God had so radically transformed their lives that they just relocated to that place. They stayed. They were from Cyprus. They were from Cyrene, but they stayed in Jerusalem. But when the persecution came that rose up around Stephen, most of the Christians, aside from the apostles, were dispersed then to go out because God wanted the message to go out. And we're told here that some of those Jews that were naturally born in Cyprus or Cyrene, but that were saved and serving in Jerusalem, now go as far as Antioch. And when they come to Antioch, they resonate with a group of Jews that are in Antioch, called here in the Bible, Grecians. And the reason why these men from Cyprus and Cyrene were effective in Antioch is because the Grecian Jews in Antioch could resonate with them because they were also Jews living abroad. They weren't natural-born citizens. I, I wonder sometimes what it was like, what it would be like to be a Jew raised and living in a Roman city or in a Libyan city because Cyrene was actually in northern Africa, which at that time was part of the Roman Empire. What must that have been like? Because what we know is that no matter where Jews have ever lived anywhere in the world, they've been hated and persecuted. And I wonder if at some point these Grecian, Cyrenian, Cyprusian, is that a word? Jews, 
that were there ever thought to themselves, God, why am I here? God, why am I born in Cyprus? God, why am I born in Cyrene? I don't fit here. I don't look like these people. My culture isn't like these people. My parents won't let me assimilate with these people. Everything about me is different. These people hate me. I'm one thing. They're another thing. Why do you have me here? I wonder if maybe you've ever felt like that in your own life. I wonder if there's ever been a season or a time that you thought like, my life is just the result of like 17 accidents that people made somewhere in the lineage of my, of my past history. And I don't even know why my parents got together because th- that, that combination just didn't work well. You know? and, and, and so I don't fit anywhere. I don't belong. Why am I here? You know, this doesn't make sense to me. My nationality, why am I this nationality in this place? Why am I this gender? It doesn't seem to fit me. Why am I this personality? Why was I born in this time? Why, why is my life what it is? And we can think that our lives are just an accident. We're misplaced. We're not where we're supposed to be. Now, when you give your life to Jesus, which is ultimately what God is intending for every person, what you begin to discover is that there is nothing wasted with God and that there are no accidents with God. And that every single thing that happens to every single person is intentional on purpose and is not an accident. And it isn't simply just turned around once you get saved. No, 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 no. God knew beforehand what he was doing when he made you, where he made you, what he made you, how he made you. And he is going to use you in some way with all of that for his purpose when Jesus unlocks what he has made you for. That's what he does. And so it may have taken 20 years, it may have taken 40 years, but when these men from Cyprus and Cyrene go to Antioch and resonate with a group of people that no one else could, all of a sudden they can say, oh God, that's why you had me raised in that place, in that culture outside, because there was someone somewhere that needed to resonate with what I could understand, because as they are outsiders, I also am an outsider. It needed to be men of Cyprus and Cyrene in order for the people in Antioch to hear. Listen, it it needed to be someone who never fit in, in the place where they lived, the context of their life. It needed to be someone with poor social skills because sometimes people that are too slick can cause someone to put up a shield. It needed to be someone who, when they were young, was soaking themselves in science fiction novels while everyone else was out playing sports because that kind of imagination is what would resonate with certain people. It needed to be someone who was raised in an abusive environment in order for them to recognize what someone else was going through in a different place, in a different part, and for a different reason at a different time. See, God needed you to be where you were, what you were, how you were, for something maybe you don't even realize what he's doing yet. But these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who now find themselves in Antioch, preach to people that they can resonate with, and a revival breaks out. Because it tells us that many people turned to the Lord in this thing. And listen to this. The momentum of this revival in Antioch was so great that notice what it says in verse 21. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. 
Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. So the revival is so great that word gets back to Jerusalem, and they now come to this man Barnabas and say, hey, we want you to go and help out and see what's going on and encourage the churches that are there. Now, this is not the first time we have seen Barnabas in the book of Acts. He's actually shown up. uh, This is now the third time that he's on the scene. His name means son of encouragement or son of consolation. And, And we've seen that that is exactly what he is. He is an elder in the early church. He is an honorary apostle. He's not one of the 12 that Jesus appointed, but he is labeled lumped in with the apostles in certain places in the book of Acts. We know that he is an encourager, but what he is above all else is that this man, Barnabas, is a genius of empathy. This man is so good at understanding where people are at and coming alongside of them and helping them uh, with understanding, all right? Uh, Empathy is simply this. It's feeling someone else's point of view. We sometimes can see someone else's point of view. Like, we can mentally come to an understanding of where someone's coming from. But someone who is empathetic knows how to feel someone's point of view. They can feel what's behind the emotions. Jesus was a genius of empathy. When you look at the way that Jesus interacted with common people, he always led forth with empathy. He met them in what they were going through in that very moment. Whether it was a a, a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, or whether it was Zacchaeus who was up in the tree, it didn't matter who it was. In fact, that's, there is one group of people that Jesus did not uh, empathize with, and that was the, the Pharisees and the religious people. Uh, with them, it was lion. It was plain truth, like it was iron. You know? but, but with any common person, any broken person, Jesus came in right where, right where they were. Even Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you know, Jesus wept with them. He, he walked right into what they were feeling. Like that, he was so sensitive uh, in that thing, coming alongside. And we see that reflected so amazingly in this man, Barnabas. I think I would have liked him. If I was there in Jerusalem in those days, I think I would have wanted him to be my pastor. I would have just, as much as I could, just get around someone who can kind of get where I am. And that's what he did. He did that for Saul. Nobody wanted to believe that Saul was really saved. Barnabas did. He came alongside. He said, no, I heard him preach. I see something in him. He's sincere. He brought him to Peter and the apostles and said, you need to just receive this guy. Trust me on this. And they did. That was the kind of man that Barnabas is. Now, it tells us that when Barnabas arrives in Antioch, verse 23, it says that when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. Now, I almost just did a whole sermon just on that verse right there. It was almost going to be, tonight we're just going to do verse. We actually are, because when it all comes back to, that's what, that's what this is all about. But I, I love this line that Barnabas says right here. He just says, hey, guys, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that I can make my message, he says it's this, that with purpose of heart, cleave to the Lord, or cleave with purpose of heart. To cleave It's a King James, Old English, fancy word that just means to become one. That there is an inseparable union between two things, two separate things. And so he's saying that this is number one, is cleave to the Lord. Like get so connected with Jesus that there's absolutely no airspace or air gap between you and him. That there's an inseparable bond. Like make that the goal and the aim and the ambition of your life is that there's an inseparable fellowship and communion connection between you and Jesus. 
And then second of all, do that with purpose of heart. In other words, yield the entirety of your being and your will to his will. Make his purpose for your life and his purpose for the world your purpose for your life and your purpose for the world. Cleave to him and yield to him. That's my message to you. That's a really good message. If you make that the aim of your life, if someone is here is, is, is over the age of 30 and they want to get a tattoo, okay, that's what you get tattooed all across your back. Lord, make me cleave to you with purpose of heart. Because if you live there in that space, then you will do well. <laughs> I guarantee that you will make it, all right? Now, the strength of Barnabas' message is given to us in verse 24. The reason it resonated and landed and found its mark is it says, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added to the Lord. He was a good man, he was full of God, and he was full of faith. That was the kind of man that he was. He had a good reputation, he was productive, and he was good. That's a very hard combination to find, by the way. You can find good people that aren't filled with the Spirit. You can find uh, good Spirit-filled people that uh, don't have faith, you know, but to find someone who's all through, you have a good, good reputation, productive person. And it tells us then in verse 25 that when all this happened, and this is just a, a reflection of his goodness, it says that he departed, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek for Saul. In his mind, in his heart, even after all of these years now since he last encountered Saul in Jerusalem, he sees the work that's going on in Antioch. He sees the potential. He sees the revival. He sees the people that are coming to faith in Jesus. And in his mind, he is not thinking, how can I maximize my influence here? How can I leverage this opportunity that I have right now to become the, the face of the church in Antioch? Barnabas, Pastor Barnabas, Senior Pastor Barnabas. So, no, he, he thinks to himself, he says, do you know who would just be so helpful in this scene and in this setting here? I remember the fire. I remember the passion. I remember the kind of person that Saul was. And he is Saul of Tarsus. He is not native-born in Israel. He's native-born in Rome. It seems like that's making headway here. He says, I need to find Saul and bring him here to this place. And so he leaves Antioch, he goes to Tarsus, and he wants to find Saul there. Now, I want you to just think for a minute about how much faith it actually took to just do this. Because this was not the days of, of you know, smartphones and text messages and DMs and, and even phone books. I mean, he had to literally just be like, I think he's in Tarsus, so I'm just going to go to the city and hope I can find him. I'm going to figure it out when I get there. He also had faith because he had to believe that once he found him, that he would be available and that he would be willing to leave whatever he was doing to come back to Antioch. And then he had to have faith to think, well, how am I going to convince him to do that even if I find him and maybe he's willing? This was a big move on Barnabas's part, but there was something inside where he said, this is what has to happen. So Barnabas responds. He goes to Tarsus to seek for Saul he finds him, verse 26, and he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and they taught 
much people, and the disciples, bit of history for you, were called Christians first in Antioch. Have you ever wondered where that came from? That's where it came from. It started in Antioch. Christian just simply means little Christ. Okay, now I love this thing. He goes to Tarsus. He finds Saul, saw the potential that Saul could bring, and decided it was worth the effort to go and find him. One of the things about Barnabas's faith that is inspiring to me is that he didn't just have faith in God. He had faith in God in others, meaning that when he saw a, another human being that was filled with God, he realized the, the, the thing that they brought to the table and he gave it the proper weight that it deserved. That he realized that I, Barnabas, he realized that I am something in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God, but I am not everything in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. And that the world needs both of us. He, he said to himself, I'm not going to insufficiently try to meet a need that someone else is equipped to meet, nor will I suppress what God has given to someone else because I want to maximize what someone else can get from me. He realized that we is better than me and us is better than they, and that if we can get everybody's strength fully operating in this thing called the church, then the glory of God will be magnified and the kingdom will grow, the church will be strong. And so that's what he decided to do. And he goes for Saul, and the result is as, as we see. It says that many people were taught it was a good, good move, okay? Now, Saul was looking for his calling, waiting for it, and now he interns in Antioch for these years. Now, watch what happens in verse 27. It says that it came, or and in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and he signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so this man, Agabus, who will show up again later on in the book of Acts, he's a prophet from Jerusalem. He comes to the city of Antioch, and in the midst of something, he gives this word in the spirit, and he says that there's going to be a famine that's going to come to pass. Now, it says that it came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. It doesn't necessarily say that he said that's when. He just said there's going to be a famine that's going to affect the whole world. Now, what I love about the church at this stage and these people in this text is that when they heard that, they didn't sit and say, how interesting. Let's watch and see how this all plays out and let's pray about how God might use us when that happens. No, they heard by the Spirit a man speak and say, hey, the Lord is revealing that there's about to be a famine in the land. And they said, let's move now. Did you guys know that the Holy Spirit is not ISO compliant? Do you guys know what ISO is? It's that thing if you work in corporate, some kind of corporate thing, where everybody fills out the same form the same way. It's like the DMV, you know, where it has to be this way. We are so crippled in America with compliance and process and things. 
okay? Because we think, well, okay, well, there's a way to do this, and we got to strategize, and let's make a plan, and let's wait for this, and we get our prompting and the whole thing, and once that happens, we'll apply and this whole thing. You know, God says, now there's going to be a famine. And then he's, he's ready to do something. And the church responded so promptly is that they heard this and they said, okay, we are going to get together everything that we've got. Who's got money? Who's got resources? Who's got a donkey or a cart? We are going to, what, what we can do right now is that we can send something back to Jerusalem and help the people, the, the Christians that are there. These prophets are telling us that, that there's a problem. Let's go. Now, the famine didn't come right away. It came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. That was a little bit extended out into the future. But see, God's design behind this was not only to bring relief to the famished people in Jerusalem, but God wanted to get Saul and Barnabas into Jerusalem at a very specific moment, and he used a prompting of a prophet and then the stirring of the spirit inside of the people to get them there in that moment. And it's an amazing thing that happens once they do, okay? Because there is a young man in Jerusalem at this time by the name of John Mark. You may know him as Mark. He wrote a book. It's in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of him, all right? But there is a fire stirring in the heart of this young man, and God wants him exposed to Barnabas and Saul. And so God is orchestrating something here. He's putting something together because he's moving. He's stringing things together for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Well, watch what happens as we come now into chapter 12. Let's read the first four verses. It says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Now, if this was a movie, it would flash across the screen. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem because that's where we are. We're back in Jerusalem. And so verse two, it says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also, for then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended or arrested Peter, he put him in prison and he delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers, that 16 men, to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. By the way, this has nothing to do with the message tonight, but those who say that the word Easter is unbiblical, it is in the King James Version, the authorized text, the word Easter is used. It's okay to call it Easter if you want. That was free. Just to highlight it and bring it up sometime in the spring if you need to, and someone comes to you and says, it's Resurrection Sunday, it's not Easter. You know. God knows what you're talking about. This is, this is not a good season for the church in Jerusalem right now. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on uh, for them. First of all, we know that there is a famine. We're gonna, we, we heard that prophesied back a few verses ago at the end of chapter 12. We're going to find out it was actually true. Uh, so people are starving there. What we discover here is that the communal living that the church embraced early on did not work long term. It worked for a while but communal living does not work in a fallen world because people are in, in, intuitively or innately, I guess, lazy <laughs> or, or selfish or we're more apt to take than to give. 
And, and so it worked for a while, but everybody selling everything and then trying to distribute it out to the multitudes, it didn't work very well. And it came to a point now where they're, they're kind of becoming poor. I was, uh, listen, I was flipping radio stations. You know, sometimes I just do that in the car. I don't even stop. It's just doom, 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 doom. And, and I heard this conversation, this interesting voice, so I stopped for a moment. It was NPR. And there was a person interviewing another person on NPR, and the one person was saying how we need to embrace uh, a communist Marxist uh, ideology for life in, in the United States of America. And NPR is completely like that way, you know, so even the interviewer is like, hmm, interesting. And, and so the interviewer kind of got themselves into a corner because the interviewer said to, to this person, they said, well, can you, can you just, um, you know, what would that look like? Is there, is there a time in history or a, you know, a place in history where, you know, where somebody did that and it effectively worked? And the person said, well, um, well, oh, yeah, sure. There's, uh, there, you know, and, 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 and there was no example. There was nothing. And so the person said, well, is there, is there a, a, an example, something that we could build it off of? And, and the, the response of the person who's saying this has to happen said, well, we need to create one. That's what we need to do. We need to create one. That's, that's the answer in this whole thing. And so the, then the person giving the interview saying, but, you know, but, and, and it got awkward because they realized that they kind of like stumbled into like a really bad argument over things because it just doesn't work, okay? Now, before you say, amen, capitalism, right? Capitalism doesn't work either in a fallen world, all right? Because what communism won't do in a capitalist society the implosion that comes from greed and lust and indulgence will ruin ultimately what capitalism says should be. All right? Nothing works in a fallen world except for the Lord Jesus Christ instilling righteousness in the heart and putting a power in the spirit in us that we don't have apart from him. Amen. Okay? So it didn't work. There was famine in Jerusalem. All right? Now, not only that, but we're told that James is dead. He's the first of the apostles to be martyred. And so one of the apostles now has been put out, and that's a blow to the church. Because it pleased Herod, he took Peter and he puts him in prison also. So Her James is dead, Peter's in prison, and it seems like Herod is doing whatever he wants. He holds all the cards. He seems to have, at this point, more power than the church. So things are not looking good for the church in Jerusalem at this moment. But watch what happens. I love verse 5. It says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. If this chapter is a seesaw or a teeter-totter, this is the pendulum upon which the board swings. This is the pivotal point in this entire episode and chapter in the church in Jerusalem, okay? But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Watch what happens. It says that when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So these 16 men, some are chained to Peter, some are outside the gates. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, Peter, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird yourself and bind on your sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast your garment on you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him 
and wist not or knew not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. He was kind of in that place halfway between sleep and awake where he wasn't exactly sure if this was even real. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. It just opened. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, now I know of a surety of truth that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Okay, I love verse 11, that, that whole, now I know that it was the Lord. I mean, here's Peter, right? He's in prison. An angel smacks him on the side. The lights turn on, says, get your sandals on. Put your pants on, get your coat on. The chains fall off, the doors open, they pass out, they walk out, they pass one street, the whole thing, the guards are fast asleep. Peter gets out, the whole thing's over, he's free, and he goes, that was God. God just set me free. Now, before you laugh at Peter, have you ever done the same thing? Isn't, isn't it something, the way God has a way of delivering us answering our prayer, doing something so powerful in our life, and it isn't until like a month after the whole episode is complete that we go, wait, wait, God, you can't do that. You can't do it in such secret. I'm supposed to know that you're doing it in the moment. But he has a way of doing it in ways that we can't see and we don't recognize it until it's over. Some of you maybe even right now are in a situation where you feel like you're in a prison and you're praying to God for deliverance, and you feel like the situation is just getting worse. You feel like you're getting kicked in the side. You feel like you're getting bossed around. You feel like it's confusing. It's worse before it gets better. You may be right in the middle right now of God delivering you from something or through something that you have no idea, but you will because that's what he does. Now, let me show you what faith looks like. Verse 12. It says that when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Okay, so John Mark enters the story. It's not his house, it's his mother's house. He's a young man at this time. And it says that they were gathered together there praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. So this little young woman comes, she hears a knocking outside. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate, for gladness. So she's so shocked by what she sees and hears that she runs in and told them how Peter stood outside the gate. Now watch, here's faith, verse 15. But they said unto her, you're mad. You're out of your mind. You're crazy, young lady. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, it's his angel. You're seeing ghosts. You're seeing things, young girl. Now, now picture the scene. You're there, right? You've been, you've been in a prayer meeting. Everybody's there. Jesus, please, the situation is desperate. We're hungry. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Herod's empowered. Lord, give us power. Give us strength. Lord, please don't kill Peter. Please don't let Peter go the way of James. Lord, please set Peter free from the prison. Lord, please, oh, the distractions. Whenever you try to pray, Lord, we rebuke the knocking at the door. Rhoda, just go silence it. It's Peter. It's Peter. It's Peter. They're like, shh. We're praying for Peter. It's not Peter. Peter's in prison. 
Lord, please set Peter free. Lord, we know you can do it. Nothing's too hard for you. That's faith. See, listen, sometimes, okay, sometimes faith is in obedience in our actions, not necessarily faith that we believe in a certain outcome. Okay, what does the Lord say? He said to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind. Okay, so faith oftentimes is expressed in obeying to pray. Okay, it's surrendering the outcome, and the faith is just in praying, because sometimes it's very difficult to believe in a certain outcome. It's very unlikely in the track record of history that Peter is the one actually knocking on the door. We know that with God, all things are possible. He asks us to pray. That's what he asks us to do. Isn't it funny how non-inclined we are to pray? And yet over and over again, we see in the scripture and in our lives, the power of prayer. They pray, Peter's delivered. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them, I skipped verse 16. I don't want to skip it. It says, but Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go show these things to James and to the brothers, and he departed, and he went to another place. He said, I better not stay here. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. That was the penalty for losing a prisoner. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and there he abode. Now watch the outcome, verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased of them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, that means the guy who makes the king's bed, their friend desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And so there's kind of this political uh, rift between people in Syria and Herod, who's in charge down in Israel. He's Roman, but he's in charge in Israel. And it says that upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. So he gives this pompous speech. And the people gave a shout saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. All right, who gets the last word, right? He, he, uh, he stood in God's place. God said, all right, that's one step too far. But verse 24 says that the word of God grew and multiplied. Okay, the outcome is so much different than what happened at the onset. At the beginning of the chapter, there was famine, James was dead, Peter was in prison, and Herod was calling the shots. At the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, Peter is free, relief has come from Barnabas and Saul to relieve them of the situation concerning the famine, and now the word of God is central. It says that the word of God grew and multiplied. What made the difference between what was and how things turned out? But prayer was made of the church unto God without ceasing for him. 
Don't believe the lie internally or even what you might hear with your ears that prayer doesn't matter much because God already knows what he's going to do. We cannot understand where our prayers interact with God's will in terms of what he's doing in the invisible realm and its manifestation in the visible realm. But he calls us to pray nevertheless, and he moves in response and reaction to our prayers. Look at the massive turnaround in this text between what was and what turned out just because of prayer. Yet we struggle so much to do it. In verse 25, it says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and watch this, and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Do you see the timing of how all this played out? Saul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem in the middle of this whole episode with James being killed, Peter being arrested. And they are allegedly there in the room, probably praying with them in the moment that Peter is set free. They come into contact with John Mark, and in the middle of it, they see the fire that's in him. He sees the opportunity that's before him in them, and they invite him to now come back with them to Antioch because God is about to light a blowtorch over the entire Roman Empire by sending out a missionary team that's going to change the world forever. And it's God working all of these things out. Now, earlier on in, in the study tonight, I told you that this passage, this whole chapter, has history and insight and understanding and spiritual principles, and it has all that. But there's also a pattern that answers the question, how do we enjoy the life that Jesus came to give through the gospel? That's the question, if you can remember that long ago. Okay. And what it comes down to is exactly what Barnabas told the church to do when he came to Antioch. He said, with purpose of heart, cleave unto the Lord. Two words, surrender and service. Surrender your life completely to Jesus. That's what establishes the connection that makes you cleave to him, makes the two one. And then make his purpose for your life and for the world your purpose, that you serve his purpose as you go. And here's what I want you to understand, is that every single thing that happened in the segment of scripture that we went through tonight, from the beginning to the end, was the result of individuals who were surrendered fully to God and dedicated fully to service for God. Every single thing that happened. It starts with a few unnamed Jewish men from Cyprus and Cyrene who got saved on a sanctioned religious trip to the Holy Land. They gave their lives to Jesus when they heard Peter preach and then dedicated themselves to do whatever God wanted them to do with their life. And in surrender and service to Jesus, they relocate to Israel and now are forced out as far as Antioch. And because of it, a revival breaks out because they resonated with the people that were there. Because of that revival, they send to, for Barnabas and Barnabas, who is also surrendered completely to the person of Jesus and to serving his purposes in the world, leaves an insulated and somewhat comfortable position in Jerusalem, and he goes to Antioch because God has something for him to do there. And in the midst of being in Antioch, he remembers, oh yeah, Saul. 
And because Saul in Tarsus was surrendered completely to Jesus and sold out to do whatever Jesus would ask of him, when Barnabas comes to get Saul, Saul says, I've been waiting for a call from God. And this is it. I've been cultivated. I've been seasoned. I have suffered. And there is an opportunity and an open door for me to go to Antioch. And I don't care what it is. I'm in. If Jesus wants me there, I'm there. And Saul leaves Antioch, I'm sorry, Tarsus, and he goes to Antioch and interns there being prepared in the final stages cultivated for the calling that's going to come when we get into chapter 13 because he's surrendered and serving. Because they were surrendered and serving when they heard the word that there's a need for relief in Jerusalem. They get together the resources and Saul and Barnabas say, we'll go, we'll go right now. Load the donkey, load the cart, let's go. And when they get to Jerusalem, because there's a man named John Mark there who surrendered and wants to serve Jesus, he says, hey guys, I know this is Jerusalem and this is where it all started, but I see something in you and you see something in me and maybe we could team up. And they say, come on, pack your bags, young man, let's go. And now he goes back with them. By the way, we missed Agabus who had a part in this. He surrendered and serving as well. And he goes back uh, and this whole thing is about, I, I really genuinely believe that in this moment in history, God is having fun. He's enjoying it because he has a whole bunch of people that are fully surrendered and that are fully committed to do whatever it is that he asks them to do. They've surrendered in this whole thing. And, and, and because of it, the gospel is being spread out. Lives are being changed and things are happening and it's powerful. In closing tonight, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said five times. Now, I pay attention in the Bible when Jesus repeats himself. You guys can hang tight. Give me like two minutes, worship team, before you come. Five times Jesus said, if you seek to find your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, he said you will find it. Five times Jesus said those words. If you want to know life, then you must lose your life in order to find it. You say, yes, I've read those words, I've heard those words, and I've also never understood those words. Because what exactly does it mean to lose your life for his sake? Well, there's another, there's another thing that happened in the New Testament. There is a miracle that is recorded six times. Again, if it's recorded twice, pay attention to it. If it's there three times, it's important. If it's there four times, that's rare. But there is a miracle that is recorded six times in four Gospels. Now, it happened on two separate occasions, but it was the exact same miracle that happened the exact same way. One was when Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, and the other was when Jesus fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. And the narrative is identical between the two different occasions. Okay, here's the occasion. Jesus says, I have compassion on these people. I care about them. I want them to, to, to be sustained. I, I, I feel what they feel. And, and Jesus looks at his disciples, you. And he says, you give them something to eat. And they said, we ain't got nothing. We don't have what is necessary 
to give out what is needed in a situation such as this. We are not equipped. We are insufficient. We are not resourceful enough to be able to help out in this circumstance. And Jesus says to them, what do you have? He said, I don't need you to have enough. I just need you to own what you have. What do you have? And they said, we got a few small fish and a couple loaves of bread. And Jesus said, bring them hither to me. And so they gave what they had to Jesus. And Jesus took it, and then he gave thanks for it, which is fascinating to think of. You know, Jesus takes what's given, he gives thanks for it. Why? Because I believe that now what they gave him has God's intention because it's been given to Jesus. And so Jesus takes it now and he breaks it. He breaks down, he breaks in half the agenda that they had for what was theirs. He breaks the wholeness of what they thought what they had was for. He breaks it because it's in his hands, it belongs to him now. But then what does he do with it? He gives it back to them, and then in turn, they give it out to the multitude. They give to the multitude. Now, you, you've always heard that miracle as Jesus feeds 5,000, right? Jesus feeds 4,000. Jesus did not feed 5,000. Jesus did not feed 4,000. The disciples fed 5,000. The disciples fed 4,000. Jesus didn't do a miracle for 5,000. Jesus did a miracle for 12. They gave what they had to him. He, in turn, blessed it, gave it back to them, and then they had more than sufficient to meet whatever need was placed in front of them. And not only that, but they had 12 basketfuls left over on one occasion and seven basketfuls left over on another. What started as not enough became more than they could ever ask, think, or imagine. That's what it means to lose your life for his sake. It means that you surrender everything that you have to him and you cleave to him. You let nothing come between that connection. And then you sell out for his cause and his purpose and say, God, my life has been purchased from you. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And whatever you want to do with my life, that, God, that's what I want to do with my life. And if you want to speak to me in a moment and send me here or tell me to do this, God, make me surrendered to do your will in this moment because I am not my own. And in that moment, you become more than what you ever could be on your own. Listen, this world right now needs what you have more than you could ever understand because there is no one else that can bring it. But in and of your own strength, you will never have what it takes to become it, even to discover it, because there is something in you that you can't even access, only God can. And it is in the moment when you give yourself completely to Jesus and trust him fully with your life that that then can be put into his hands. That's why he gives thanks. He says, now this has God's intention. And he doesn't ruin it. He blesses it and he gives it back and makes it more than what you ever could ask, think, or imagine. It starts when you cross the line of faith and you give yourself completely to Jesus. And you say, Lord, my life is yours. I want to trust you with my life. You came to give life and I need to receive it. And then it comes with a second surrender of saying, God, now not my will, but your will be done. And do with me what you will. And let me tell you a secret. 
is that life is experienced where the gospel flows. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. That's what's happening. Where the, where the dots are connected is where God's message spreads out. Why? Because Jesus came to give his life to the world. He's given us life and that more abundantly. Father, we just want to thank you tonight as we uh, consider these things. And we want to, Lord, be in this place where we are fully alive, fully anointed, fully known and fully knowing, fully experiencing what it means to cleave to you with purpose of heart. So help us, Lord, to have understanding of what that means for us in this moment, in this season, where we are right now. Jesus, would you become so real to us? Would you help us, Father? Thank you, Lord, for teaching. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for clothing these concepts in ways that we can understand. We ask you to do it in us now. Make us useful in these days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.